Just a quick warning, this podcast contains themes of crime, trauma, sexual abuse, drug use and suicide. Listener discretion is advised. You're listening to Errol Parker and Clancy Overall, editors of The Batuta Advocate on Desert Rock FM. Welcome back to the Batuta Advocate Radio Show, recording live here in downtown Batuta. Uh, we've had a great string of guests on our uh, weekly podcast of, of late. Just last week, we had uh, Russell Manser, former bank robber turned abuse survivor advocate. That was a ripper. I think he prefers the term uh, ex-banker. Ex, yeah. Ex-banking He used to work expert. in financial services in the withdrawals department. Yeah, a lot of banks uh, were privy to his good work over the years. He was another one that we had zooming in. Obviously, not everyone can be here in Batuta with us, and neither can today's guest, who is a uh, an Australian writer, uh, Australian author, a I guess you'd say an identity amongst uh, you know young authors in Australia. Even though he isn't based here right now, we are zooming live from Tbilisi, Georgia, with uh, today's guest Oliver Mole. Thank you for joining us. Oh, such a pleasure, and I can feel the sunshine from Batuta all the way over here, mate. Tell us a little bit about the place you're in. Georgia, most people in Australia would only really know Georgia as um, a rugby team in the World Cup. Or as home to outcast in the south of America. Yeah, that, well, that's, that's, <laughs> there's, there's two Georgias, yes. But you're not an ATLian. You're, uh, you're actually in, what would you call it, West Asia? We're in the Caucasus, so... The Caucasus is, uh, yeah, the huge mountain range that basically runs down the middle of this country. And, uh, yeah, it's a fascinating place. It's um, a place, yeah, full of basically contradiction and change at the moment. Um, and that's why I'm here. I came here basically just before COVID because I was trying to write a book, uh, the book that just came out. And uh, I'd moved to Spain. I t- took my life savings and had moved to Spain. Um, and then I'd sort of mucked up my visa, so I couldn't stay. So I ended up going to Albania um, and uh, renting a tent on a beach and riding there for close to two weeks, which was <laughs> lovely, but not where I wanted to be long term. <laughs> and then I ended up in Tbilisi because they had a really generous visa policy. Basically, anyone can come here for a year um, and live and work. And uh, the wine was amazing. I'd heard about the mountains. I'd heard about the nightclubs. Obviously heard about the rugby. Um, and yeah, so decided to come. And yeah, I went home for COVID, but I'm still here now. Well, I have heard a pretty interesting story about why rugby union is the national game in Georgia. And that's because I could be very wrong, but it's a pub yarn I've heard, but... Uh... So at the fall of the Soviet Union, apparently when Georgia broke away, one of the first national sporting bodies, in fact the only one to ever recognise their claim to have their own rugby team, was uh, the International Rugby Board. So they were like, Georgia is its own country now. It deserves to have its own rugby union team. They're no longer the Soviet rugby union team. Mm, yeah, it was the, it was the newly... Uh, the newly- implemented Ministry of Sport in Georgia got a phone call from some person at a... A bureaucrat. A bureaucrat at the rugby, uh, the International Rugby Board. And uh, overnight, they swore their loyalty to rugby union. And, and actually, 
I mean, uh, you'd be able to tell us a bit more about that, but I do know that they almost work as mercenaries now. These big Georgian men kind of get get uh, they sign contracts in like provincial French clubs and would have the time of their lives. Well, it's pretty funny because you know when you when you talk about Georgia, I think yeah, a few things come up, and it's basically a country that is in such a state of flux. You look back at the '90s, you know, uh, this time that we're talking about, where Georgia came out from behind um, the Iron Curtain, and you know was becoming a, 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 a its own ind- independent state, and basically it was a super dangerous place. It was intense. There were gangs running the streets. There was a lot of heroin. There was mafia. There was not a lot of electricity. Uh, my friend Peter, who's a writer here, he runs one of the oldest bookshops, basically. And uh, it's, I think it started in about 92. And he was telling me out in Svaneti, which is uh, in the northwest of the country in the mountain regions, which basically up until not so long ago did not run by normal law. Vendettas between families were normal. Reactionary killings were normal. And he was telling me that there was a family out there that basically would just rob anyone who came past in Etseri. So what the government did was flew a huge helicopter and basically hovered above them with a machine gun and a rocket launcher, and they just took out the house. Really? And that's sort of, uh, you know, we're getting a little bit sidetracked here, but to answer your question about, like, the mercenaries, like, it's probably not so far from the truth. (laughs) But then... Something really, something really interesting happened in Georgia, though, and it's not something I've seen in a lot of countries that's been done, but basically it completely turned around its narrative. So, yeah, in like the early 2000s, I believe the, um, all the crooked cops were, were fired and let go. The police changed their glass. Uh, they made the glass um, transparent instead of uh, opaque. And um, now I think Georgia is one of the fourth safest countries in the world. Really? So, so and you just, yeah. you just went there on a whim because you needed a visa in Europe? Yeah, so I, I basically got this job on the railway. Yeah, long story short, I had this pretty intense 10-month migraine. Yeah, yeah. Um, we, we, after we, my- want, we want to get into the book. I, when we met you, Oliver, you, you had just published 2015 Lion Attack. We'll eventually get to what got you to Georgia, but I want to <laughs> talk about Lion Attack that was of a time. There was a scene within, you know, literature known as alt lit. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And the term, even the term alt, sounds very much of that time, two thousand fourteen. You know, that we—that's when we start talking about the alt right and the alt left and the alt lit. <laughs> tell us a little bit about alt lit and what was that, and um, the role you played in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got into alt-lit, I think, because I was looking for a community in, in literature and in writing. And, you know, I'm 34 now, and so a lot of the people that I was reading and talking to, uh, whether that was online or what else, you know, we were the generation that kind of grew up. Uh, we could remember before the internet, and we could remember the internet too. So we kind of had this dual perspective of um, what life was and was not, I, I suppose. And so... We were trying to make sense of that. A lot of the literature at the time, I felt, wasn't really addressing or using the internet in, in their work. And uh, we, we sort of just went wholeheartedly on the other side of that, I guess. So mainly people were based in America and Canada. I was sort of one of the main people in Australia. And for a while, it was beautiful, you know, like it really felt like a movement, like a young movement of people doing something different for a change. It felt like the main literary establishment was pretty against what was going on. And in hindsight, I can, I can understand why. 
But I think for us at the time, it, it was something that felt so integral and important because this was how we were communicating and this was how we were. It spoke to our current situation and, and that growing idea and sense perhaps of loneliness and disconnection as well that was, uh, yeah, maybe beginning to pervade certain spaces or something like that. And then the whole scene fell apart. So, yeah, yeah there was, uh, there was uh, sexual abuse allegations and um, physical abuse allegations and lots of people from these main sectors kind of turned out to be not the, um, you know, the, the, the beautiful or respectable people that they had once said they were. And then I concurrently, yeah, suffered this sort of migraine. And it's funny, I think, because the book that I uh, wrote, Train Lord, is a very almost anti-internet book not not because i hate the internet just because i simply couldn't look at screen so it yeah. became the inverse of the first one i did it was the it was yeah. the mirror to that i guess so yeah mm. you you yeah, line attack and, and your kind of alt lit you know online community was a way of you getting in the door as a writer i guess you know mm. and i'm sure there's a whole lot of other industries that are, that are in the same vein as you i can imagine the art world wasn't too happy about all these artists popping up on instagram we know for a fact in the sporting world there's been kids signing contracts based off youtube videos of them in high school you know what i mean and i know there's mm. always a resistance to to the technological kind of um advances you know socially that a- end up making their way into different industries and in different sectors you then unrelated to you know your screen time which was obviously a lot you know it, it was 2014 social media was happening everyone was blogging everyone was writing yeah i think that was the, around the time when every person finally relented to the fact they had to get a smartphone yeah and around that time you develop this migraine which i think is it's the fabric of this book is this 10 month migraine you had that's not related you don't believe that's related to screens or anything like that i mean screens would definitely make it worse but it was just something that was going to happen to you wherever you were in the world, whatever you were doing. Oh, no, I reckon, yeah. I reckon it was fully to do with, you know, like, like for me, like basically what happened was, you know, after, yeah, that first book came out and I was so involved in the scene and I was so, but, but what comes with that too is like, you know, I, I, I didn't have the maturity to be able to separate myself from the work. I think at that time, because internet and person were emerging at the same time, uh, and I'd never really had a mentor nor really understood kind of what I was doing. And, and I, you know, I was publicly, I was publishing prolifically on Facebook. I'd kind of stopped publishing anywhere else. It, I, I kind of just said, for like, you know, I'm out of, of lit mags or whatever. I felt like the audience was all online and so because I was publishing so much in those spaces when reviews came out of the book which were you know mostly pretty good but some of them were were horrific and understandably so I didn't have the maturity to separate my my ego from the work I think so I took on board all those criticisms and yeah it it, it hit me really really hard and so and I still remember like flying to Melbourne for the launch and I was sitting in the airport, like trying to write a short story. And then all of a sudden, yeah, this, this, I'd had a few of them before, but this one felt like quite a bit worse. And I remember, yeah, just like going to the bathroom and it was like my head veins were sticking out and my eyes had gone bright red. And it felt like someone was just smacking me in the shovel with the, in the back of the head. And then that was like a little mini one that, that lasted a few days. I, I did the launch, but I had to, I was drinking a lot and I took a lot of painkillers and then and then I did this um, grant. I was trying to write the next book. 
And that, that was the beginning of the big one, basically, where, yeah, this, this kind of like stretching and breaking and stretching and breaking started to happen. It's interesting that it happened while I was trying to get a grant to write the next book as if my brain was telling me, just shut the fuck up, please. Like, you can't. Just you need to relax and you need to do you need to do some work on yourself because what you're opening yourself up to is destroying you. So yeah, that one basically I yeah fell over, crawled outside, vomited in the grass, and then that one lasted ten months. So tell me what you've identified it to be. I mean, I'm, I've had to read your book, and that you went through the paces, you went through the MRIs, you went through the chiropractors. I'm sure at some point you thought there was a tumor in there. Do you look at this as a burnout or an information overload? What would you, yeah. what would you in hindsight diagnose this to be? Yeah, a breakdown for sure. But also I think, you know, just completely burnt out. I think the other thing that people don't talk about that much as well is, you know, when you're a young artist and, yeah, you don't have a lot of mentorship or direction, you know, I, I always assumed once I got a book done that, you know, it would money would just flow. You know, and and I'd been living week to week for a long time, trying to you know do whatever you might call this creative or artistic life to be. You know, I was also drinking a lot and partying a lot. Uh, I wasn't taking care of myself, but I just assumed that you know once this book got done, I really thought that you know <laughs> money would just stop being yeah. such an issue. Yeah, grants would come through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but the reality is, is like you know nothing really ever cha- nothing changes that dramatically unless you get like a bestseller or something or you know I'm a, I'm in a much better financial uh, place now but I think in terms of when you write a book or I think most people can relate to this you guys can relate to this I'm sure when you finish a huge project and your body has just been manufacturing these drugs inside you for so long keeping you focused keeping you tuned keeping you like in the creative space of what you're trying to do and whether that lasts 3 6 12 months you finish that and all of a sudden it's like you've lost your purpose for a certain extent because this thing that you were doing every day is suddenly not yours it's gone and secondly uh, I was listening to this podcast with this uh, I think she was like a neuro something to do with neuroplasticity or something in the brain but she was talking about how your body yeah manufactures these drugs and then needs time to return to homeostasis yeah so it's why you know those post exam blues or post creative blues or or you you perform on a stage and you get off and you just feel absolutely like wipes and and, yep. and and I think for me it took a while for for everything to return uh, to a sort of level of homeostasis or something so to answer your question burnout 100% it is a different kind of burnout too because it's you're trying to level up and not letting yourself come down from your first body of work a good example if you really want to look at it I feel now that we're talking about it is Will Smith on the night that he wins the Oscar for King Richard and he made an absolute fool of himself you know what I mean those awards nights those premieres those you know big openings funny shit happens because people don't know how to process the fact that this has just happened I've always found that like after you've written a book or you've done this or you've done that the worst thing about having to do that entire process is afterwards as you do say as the rush kind of wears off so you have to do all the press around it and you just constantly have this, you just constantly have to, you know, talk to ABC in Adelaide, you know, to the overnight guy who's like, you know, you're just constantly having 
to be like, well, it's this, you know, it's that, you know, and then he's just like, oh, you know, tell me more about it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then you're just like, for God's sake, yeah. mate. Yeah. And that, that's what we're treating to you too right now, Oliver, on the press run for Train Lord. Yeah. It's just. You constantly. You have to sell yourself time and time again, right? And it, at a certain point, what was it recently? I, I remember I sent. It, it was yes, I sent something to someone where I was trying to you know you know get on a show half as respectable as what we're on right now, fellas. And uh, and I remember I'd, I'd sent these questions in or so, or like these responses, and I just remember like as soon as I sent it, just feeling like. Oh my god! Like it's just the most embarrassing thing I've ever. It's like you're groveling to try and yeah, yeah. sell something that you've made in order to make a life, in order to pay rent, in order to like. And and at a certain point, and I think it's like if you have a kid, right? Like, and they come up to you and they're they're like, "Oh yeah, I was thinking about being a writer or something," and it's like you better make damn sure you live and breathe by these words, like you, because I think that's what it, you know. That's what it all comes back to. It really does come back to love. And there's a reason, you know, like why people do what they do, right? And for most people, I think in this sphere, as hard as this stuff is, as hard as, you know, like almost jumping in front of a train is because you couldn't figure it out. Like there's a reason why I'm still doing it. It is love because while you're having these 10-month migraines and these meltdowns and you're descending into, you know, recreational drug use it's kind of probably getting a bit too close to uh you know <laughs> you're blurring the lines between want and need and meanwhile anyone who's not in that world like it, it just i just think of that dire straits song they, they think you're a rock star like money for nothing and your chicks for free you know you've actually mm. just you're burnt out you've got a 10 month migraine but fuck you're mm. lucky you don't have to hold a shovel you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Which is interesting because that's kind of what you went and did. You threw it all. Your brain told you to stop. You, you closed the laptop. You put down your pen and paper. And you went and got a job on the Sydney trains. And yeah. was that what, – what was your thinking in that process? Was that just – you just needed to do something completely different or you just needed a job? Uh, I just needed a job. You know, long story short and, uh, yeah, almost jumped in front of a train because no doctors could help me uh, – and then, yeah, really glad that I didn't. Uh, went to Brisbane and sort of recuperated for three months. Saw someone who I called the healer, who wasn't a real doctor, but he uh, he, manip- he manipulated all the nerves in my neck. And uh, for the first time in, yeah, in the 10 months, I didn't have a migraine. And so by the end of that three months, I still couldn't look at screens or uh, anything up close or uh, laptops, for example. But um, I wasn't for the most part in pain and that, and that felt like something. So I returned to uh, Sydney because I needed to get on with my life. I, you know, I couldn't just keep living at home. And uh, one afternoon I took two painkillers and I Googled no experience full-time Sydney and uh, <laughs> this, this job on the railway came up. And um, so I speed typed an application and sent it in. I still don't know what it said, but it was kind of a miracle to be honest because there was something like 40,000 people who applied. And I think in my intake, there were 20 or 30 jobs. And so I still don't know what I put it down to. You know, there were there were three or four rounds of interviews. There was a role play. There was like a, a psych sort of evaluation. It's sort of one of those miracle jobs that uh, they call golden handcuffs because yeah. you make good money, yeah. like good money. And yeah. bar 
bar any violence on the train uh, or suicides or whatever have you, like it's pretty, it's vital, like for sure it's vital, but it's like, it's pretty good. Yeah. Uh, apart from shift work as well. So, and, and even the amount of, uh, you know, taxi drivers that you'd meet because, you know, when you got to start at Flemo or out at Leppington or whatever, They'll, they'll get you a taxi at like three in the morning to, to go do that. And, and you're just sitting there and the, and all you want to do is sleep and the taxi driver just wants to talk about your job so they can apply for the next year to get like <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> everyone wants it. Everyone yeah. wants it. I found it quite interesting reading your book. It sounds like, I mean, obviously you're a writer so you can articulate a lot of the things you're thinking and you highlight a lot of the darkness of those kind of, you know, you've got all these different people from all these different backgrounds Working in this job on the train lines, it's a unique kind of job. It's a job you have for life. And there's all these bizarre things that you have to deal with. Like you said, suicides. Like you, like there's violence. There's syringes. There's spitters. You kept referring to the spitters on the train, people that would, yeah. would spit and all the drama. And then you, you kind of – there's a humor that develops eventually when you're in the kind of – in the midst of this storm. I mean, I guess the, the good pay helps too. Take us through the kind of – that egalitarian and that kind of uh, wild west you were in and, and and how quickly did you stop becoming a writer? Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, there were so many stories, like beautiful stories, I think. You know, they, they always said if you if you hadn't uh, heard a rumour before midday, make one up, um, yeah. which <laughs> so you always, you know, every day you, you show up and then you're sitting in the, um, in the break room and, yeah, you'll start talking to people. Some of my favourite ones, though, were just like, you know, just the old school stories, just hearing about like how all the train guards used to deal heroin. Yeah. So because they were on a they were on a they were on a timetable, they're on a clock, people knew where they were gonna be, someone waiting outside the guard compartment, boom, easy, easy done. The other ones though were like, you know, more more funny, like about the the guards who used to yeah, drink they'd call a it was a six pack on the way to um oh my god, I can't believe I forgot the story. Anyway, they they drink three beers on the way out and three on the way back and that that, that trip would be called a six pack. Or about the driver who you know, he'd he'd be wearing, yeah, these really dark glasses and he'd and he'd be holding a cane and so when you switch ends at each end of the train he'd he'd do that up the main uh, the main platform at Central and people would just kind of be looking at him and then he'd take <laughs> his keys and drop them on, on the on the platform and then and then he'd open the door and get in and people would be like, What the uh, like you know? The blind train driver. It's so, so good. And I think yeah, there, there was a real, uh, yeah, just a real, you know, you could still, a lot of the drivers, I don't even know if I'm probably meant to say this, but like a lot of the drivers and a lot of the guards would still just smoke in their guard compartments and stuff. Like, it, oh, mate, it, it's true. The pilots do it too, mate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Up there having a dart. <laughs> oh, you gotta, you got to take care, you know. It's, it's probably a safety prerequisite or something, but... Uh, and I suppose that for me, it was a really fascinating job because my identity as a writer ceased to matter or be a thing at all. Yeah. So all I had to do, all I had to do was do exactly what I was told. And after, you know, close to 10 years of doing the complete opposite, honestly, it was a relief. Like not only the steady paycheck, but just here's when you're going to have lunch. Here's when you need to show up. If you need to do overtime, we'll pay you this amount. We'll get you a taxi from here. Like you really switched off. But then something interesting happened, I think, where, you know, because at a certain point, I mean, I joked about it when I first got the job, right? Like 
I was like, oh, you know, the book's going to write itself. But yeah. I never even thought I was going to write again. Yeah. And then I remember, yeah, like, you know, you, you got two minutes between, um, between stations. So say from like Redfern to Central or whatever. And so I would start, I was learning to trust my body again. And so I would start writing between stations in pencil or pen in my notebook while working on the train. And I would start trying to sketch moments from this 10-month migraine that I had experienced and trying to make sense of it, trying to come at it from different angles and, and, and sort of, you know, yeah, make it make sense. And I guess that became quite interesting because those tiny little, uh, those sketches started turning into paragraphs and those paragraphs started becoming parts of the book. So the book was kind of directly related to the trains in terms of structure because for the most part, or at least the first half, it was all written between stations. I often remember bearing witness to a lot of train guards who used to read while they were on mm. on the job. Who were you reading at the time? Yeah, I was reading a lot of, um, I love Tim O'Brien. I don't know if you've read The Things They Carried. He's basically this Vietnam War. He went to the war in Vietnam. Um, he didn't want to go, but he went. And then he, yeah, became this prolific writer. And he's sort of, that book's like a masterclass in storytelling of, um, yeah, looking at memory and truth and fiction and trauma and humor and how you might be able to bring all those together to sort of tell a tale. I remember I was also, yeah, reading a lot of um, uh, Roberto Bolaño, you know, Bolaño, yeah, he, he's amazing. Also, like, Natalia Ginsberg, uh, Valeria Luiselli. A book that I discovered recently that I can't believe you hadn't read. Have you guys read Peter Carey's Bliss? No. No. I've read a lot of his stuff, but I haven't read Bliss. Bliss is the first book he ever wrote, and it completely floored me. I, I read it not so long. I read it a couple years ago when I was doing The Overland, and... Um, it feels like something that was written today and published almost by an American. All I want to say is just read it because as an Australian writer writing something in the late 80s, it's like, it's, yeah, incredibly, incredibly, incredibly ahead of its time. So right. that'll be my hot tip. Yeah, so you, you, you're writing, and I now can see that in your book, the structure. Like, it feels like a, a train timetable, your book, because it, it does weave in and out of the story you're telling. And then, and now that I now I know these little sketches that you were writing in two minutes, you know, between platforms and and whatever whatever else, we would have run into you after you'd just taken the job at maybe one of your readings or writers festivals or something along those lines. And I remember there was a yarn you were telling about you were. I mean, at that point, and it was at, uh, you know back to what you were saying before. This book's going to write itself. You had plans to read your book over the uh, PA on the bus to uh, you know to treat. The, uh, the passengers to whatever it was you were writing. But you ended up just, from what I can read in, in, in the finished book, is you were just trolling them. You know, welcome to Ashfield, or should I say Pashfield for all you singles. Very good yeah. stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or, or that one about, you know, how you're coming in to Rockdale and it, it was named after... The Rock Johnson, like <laughs> this is. <laughs> was that was that the writer? Was that the writer, or was that just you being a lifer on the trains? I think that was just me looking to inject a little bit of humour into the whole situation because we've got these little cameras, you know, and so you're sitting back there and 
again, it was a miracle that I could leave and look at those again. But I just kind of like sit there and just be looking, just looking and looking, looking. And then, and then at a certain point, it just seemed like really, really obvious. Yeah, to kind of start either doing accents. So I did an Irish one for a while. I'd be, I'd be Dara, Dara from uh, from Cork, boy, and I would kind of say, "Attention, customers." I hope you have a bloody brilliant night tonight and I hope you send it express if you're coming into King's Cross. Bye. Have a good one. <laughs> and then like one there was like there was like a creepy American guy as well I used to do. But yeah, the the best one was sort of yeah, just the 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 really dad joked kinda like, yeah, tension customers. Next stop is Ashfield, but for all you singles out there, we call it Pashfield. But then I'd <laughs> then I'd start calling people like I'd be like, "You love it, don't you? Look at ya, look at ya!" And and I think I don't know. It was it was something that. Well, I'm glad I didn't get fired for. But I think you know people would get off the train and and they'd sort of come up to you and they they just have a little grin on their face. And I think. You've had a long day at the work, at the office, you know, Nancy's talking at the coffee machine about who bloody knows what. And all you want to do is just sit back on your train and relax a little bit. And I think, you know, train guards might have a larger responsibility. You're there for the safety yeah. of the passengers. But you can, also, you can also just try a little bit to inject, you know, kindness and humor in this world go a long way, I think. And, uh, yeah, that, that felt quite important. Like, it was a joke, but it kind of felt... As much about making me laugh as about making other people laugh too. So, tell us about the the, the people that you met on the trains. You obviously, as a writer, you can find yourself. You're writing about unique experiences. You're writing about upbringings. You're writing about all these people you know and all these different scenarios. But that can become an echo chamber. You know, these writers' festivals and these readings. And, you know, when you do get that contract, you end up going up to the top of a skyscraper to sign a book deal. You know what I mean? And kind of each kind of success. Uh, which is is quite well articulated in your book. Each success takes you further away from not only yourself, but further away from a base uh, of people that you'd like to read your stuff. Did you find mm-hmm. yourself you found yourself kind of reintegrating in society, and and even more so, did you find yourself in your own little echo chamber of you and your new pals on the on the railway? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean that's the interesting thing about the railway, right? It's, it's the great leveler beyond the passengers and everyone taking trains. What was fascinating about the job is it's like, you know, there are people who used to be pilots, who used to be doctors, used to be architects, people who just come out of school as young as eighteen and as old as eighty four. It was it was a super mixed bag of people who had who had come to this job. It wasn't just your inner west sort of lefties. It wasn't your people who just uh, you know. Whatever side of the spectrum you've got, you're kind of you're, a lot of people were in there, and so yeah, to be able to mix with um, with uh, yeah, you know, Zaid he used to be a transit cop and had a baby on the way versus Dave, yeah, he used to be a pilot and telling me like you'd be a, you'd be mad to quit, like are you insane, like you know you're on house money here, like don't fuck it up. Uh, <laughs> You know, Cheryl, who used to, you know, tell me I was too skinny and give me half of a lunch every day and then start bringing an extra lunch for me just because I, you know, I've just got a fast metabolism. I was eating. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, there was, I think, 
it's so easy to right to get caught up in your own little world and but then the interesting thing about that job too is like you are in just a little box by yourself for eight hours a day and so you go from yeah once this quite uh egalitarian sort of um environment to something extremely internal and personal and i think you know that that yeah was also a bit of a shock for me and uh you know yeah loneliness can be a huge thing on the railway but I think one of the huge learnings for me as well was just being able to sit with myself too and just be okay to be alone, mm-hmm. just to, you know. And after a while, I sort of, yeah, I grew to crave it. There were times where, yeah, you'd pass Ollie at, at the Glengarry and then you'd run through the park at Central and, and then you'd end up at, uh, yeah, Central Station and get on your train. And, and sometimes that's when I started researching certain stories about, yeah, the railway that, that didn't make the book, like, like, you know how Central Station is built on a graveyard? Yeah. yeah. And there's also, there's like a gun range underneath there too, uh, <laughs> next to a, where you can, what? yeah, shoot guns. Yeah. You can shoot guns in a, in a tunnel. I think it's the, what's it called? It's like the, it's some association to do with the railway. And um, yeah, they've got a shooting range in a tunnel and then in the tunnel next to it, they grow mushrooms. I have heard about the yeah. mushrooms. Did not hear about the guns though. And then they had another one at, St. James that they were going to turn into an underground pool at some point. <laughs> um, did you find in those, um, you know, in that box by yourself, is this where the migraine ended? Did you feel it dissipate or was this kind of journey you were on uh, what you needed? Yeah, it, it certainly dissipated. It came and went on the railway. So there, there, were, there would be days when it was fine. There'd be days it wasn't fine. But I had these routines and rituals I had to do every morning. So if I was starting work at 7, then I'd wake up at uh, 5.30. And I knew I had to, like, twist my neck 30 times one way, 30 times another. I had to do all these stretches. I came a bit OCD about it. And that basically worked for a while until, yeah, another sort of – uh, relationship broke down in my life and I had a, a, a bit of a secondary crisis that caused it again and um, yeah I always knew that exercise helped uh, and and so I just started running a lot and I, I would run from you know Redfern to Bondi or to Bronte or whatever and I remember one day I kind of finished this run and I just and I just looked at the sky and I just prayed and I said like please like whoever just give me a sign and I opened my eyes and across the road there was a sign and it was like, it's like, do you get back pain, neck pain, scarship pain, headaches, migraines? Like, yes, yes, I do. And anyway, and so I went, I couldn't look at screens again at this point, And I called my brother on my burner phone and, and it was something called a rolfer. And I, and I spoke to Harry and, and he was like, listen, he's a paramedic as well. He's like, listen, mate, like, I don't know what the hell this is. It's this, probably the scam, but you know, yeah, 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 yeah like go, go check it out. And so I showed up to this yeah, mansion sort of overlooking the water, not inspiring a lot of confidence, felt definitely like a scam. And I told him the whole story. But in the end, what he told me really saved me. And he said, he's like, I need you to read a book. And I was like, I can't read. I can't read. Like, I've, you know, what aren't we understand? Like, I can't read. And he said, I oh, know, I know, I know. But, but, you know, let me just ask you two questions. He said, are you a people pleaser? And I said, ah, like... You know, if I'm honest, like, uh, yeah, I probably have that tendency. And then he said, are you a perfectionist? And I said, uh, not really, but in my writing, I'm obsessive. And he basically introduced me to the work of a Dr. John Sarno, who used to be the leading 
back rehabilitation specialist at NYU in the 90s, and he'd written a book called Healing Back Pain. And basically what Dr. John Sano said was, you know, he'd done all these tests, he'd been doing back surgery and all these people with, with back pain, uh, slip discs, bulging discs, but nothing was helping. So he started asking people about their childhoods, about their stresses, about their lives, their marriages, their work. And what he came up with, which has sort of since been um, improved upon, I would say, but his basic thing was when you repress guilt and rage unconsciously, your body is going to manifest that in some capacity. And so all you need to do basically is sit in those uncomfortable emotions and feel whatever you're feeling, stop repressing and pushing away, and then the symptom will go away. And it sounds really easy and it, you know, kind of sounds a bit woo-woo, but it's not, it's just mind-body connection, right? Like mm. you, you get embarrassed, you go red or, you know, other things happen to your unmentionables or uh, you like, it was foundational for me and listening to, you know, he treated people like Larry David, uh, Howard Stern, like... Some real skeptical it, people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like the, the type of people that would be the first to call something woo-woo, you know, you start... Yeah. Thinking, yeah, Harry's David, the Larry David and, and Stern, yeah. You started seeing results. Yeah, and, 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 yeah, basically by the end of working on the railway... I did. I mean, it wasn't just that. Like, I went to six sort of sessions with psychotherapists. I, I read that book maybe 30 times. Yeah, I did a lot of, you know, sort of free writing in a chart. It took maybe like three months to kind of get to the bottom of it. And then I decided that I was going to quit the railway and then I needed to write this book. I still felt like there was something, there was a, these narratives were inside me and I needed to do something with them and I finally could. And at that point, I'd saved up, yeah, 25 grand. And that's when I decided I was going to spend every last cent trying to write this book. And I moved to Barcelona and then Albania and then Georgia. <laughs> and yeah, it got down to about the last couple hundred dollars and then uh, got the book deal and this grant that took me back to Georgia. So I'm not saying, you know, bet everything on a dream, but uh, for yeah. me, it ended up working out. So. Yeah. So was that the trigger for you to leave the railway was that you couldn't write the book and work on the railway at the same time? I felt like I was too, I was too close to it in Sydney. I was too close to, to the pain and, and I needed, yeah, I needed an out. But yeah, I want to talk about a few strange coincidences that started happening. Uh, I remember, you know, my favorite library in Sydney is the one in Waverley and, um, and I, I, I was interested in dreams. I started having these kind of dreams and I wanted to know what they were. So I'd already booked my ticket to Barcelona and basically like I got this book on dreams and I put it next to my bedside table and at a certain point I opened it up and there was a bookmark in there and the bookmark was from Biblioteca de Catalunya, which means Barcelona or Catalunya libraries. Yeah, right. And I was like, I've already booked my ticket to Barcelona and there's a bookmark on here. A little bit strange, a little bit strange, yeah. but I didn't let it go to the head. And so... <laughs> I ended up, yeah, going to Barcelona and then when I was there and I, I was sort of having a hard time writing this, you know, what essentially was trying to uh, relive a certain amount of trauma and then I remember being like, I wonder like where that library was and so I got the bookmark and I typed it into Google and then it turned out it was right next to where I was living. A little blue dot came up and it was about 20 meters away in this old <laughs> It had been built in like the 1700s. And so, you know, 
I walked over there and I was reading Roberto Bolaño at the time. And I knew Bolaño had kind of, uh, he'd lived in Barcelona. And so I started doing some research. And then I was like, I wonder where Bolaño wrote. I wonder where he wrote. And I found this old article that had been translated. And I was living in Raval and, and uh, he had been too. And so I typed that in. And then I started walking and I started walking and then I started realizing that I was sort of walking towards where I'd been riding each day in this cafe. And then I got to the cafe and it was the same cafe and around this little corner that I'd never been to was a plaque. There's a plaque that said Roberto Bolaño lived on the second floor of this building in, in like whatever time and, and wrote here. And I had these like shivers, right? Because for me, you know, I'd burned through half the money I'd saved. I had the first chapter of this book done. That was it. But I kind of felt that maybe I was on like a right sort of path. And I know it's like also a bit woo-woo to to kind of think about that. But at the same time, I kind of think like, you how much more it. interesting to think about. Yeah. Yeah, can consider that something might, something larger than you might be sort of, uh, yeah, sort of happening. And uh, anyway, yeah, these coincidences kind of like kept happening, but that, that was the first one that, yeah, kind of made me, you know, writing can be a pretty lonely profession and, and sometimes you need to take what you can get. That's, a, uh, no, that's, that's undeniable. Those like from Waverley Library to your cafe in Barcelona, you can't really ignore those, those omens, I guess you'd say. And then obviously you had the very lucky accident of fucking up your visa in Spain and ending up in the Caucasus. Are you finding that kind of loneliness, or have you shacked up? What's going on over there? Have you, are you, are you, you've got a, you've got a, you've got a crowd in the scene there now? Or are you- is there also a cost of living crisis there? <laughs> there is, there is a cost of. I mean, yeah, you know, you can't talk about Georgia without talking about the war, and yeah. um, you know, we've. Uh, I'm here with my partner Holly, and so I came in 2019, but. Uh, you know, then in Vero, where we live, or in Old Town, you know, you could sort of rent an apartment for 300 US a month, maybe 400 if you wanted something nice. When we then arrived back in January, that sort of had been jumped to about like 600 to 700 US. Right. And nowadays, since the war, so we, we arrived about three weeks before it started, you'd be hard pressed to get an apartment here for less than 13 or 1400 US dollars if you, if you hadn't. And I guess, yeah, to understand why that is, it's, uh, you know, when the war started, there was a huge influx of Russians who have come here. And the situation is really complex because Russia occupies 20% of Georgia, so South Ossetia and Abkhazia. Um, and then you've got political and economical refugees who are coming from Russia to Georgia. So yeah. you've got an oppressor and you've yeah. also got sort of the refugee situation. And Either way, a lot of the Georgians that are my friends feel like they're being squeezed out of their country. And the rapid pace of gentrification here, uh, yeah, is pretty astounding. So there's heaps of graffiti everywhere that basically says, fuck Russia, fuck Putin. Uh, It's it's like, it's really, really intense. And I also have a lot of Russian friends too. And a lot of friends that have been here since before the war. And, you know, like... Yeah, it's it's really really difficult, but I think you know you you talk to them, and a lot of people are anti-Putin, anti-Russia. People are here for the right reasons. People are here because yeah, they don't want to um, yeah sort of support and live under that regime. But um, yeah, you know, lots of the nightclubs won't let Russian people in, Jesus. or if they do, you've got to yeah, yeah. you've got to sign an oath saying that you uh, 
yeah, Russia and Putin is a war criminal. One of the local bars here, the Dana Bar, got cyber hacked by Russians not so long ago because they made they tried to make one of the people um, yeah sign this oath and he wouldn't do it. And then two days later, their website got redirected to a pro Kremlin website and and all their all their systems went down. So Jeez, you're in the thick of it. Do you reckon there's another book there? Yeah, I reckon, mate. Yeah, yeah, I reckon there'll be something. I mean, that's why I'm here. But I, I also feel like I'm just I'm so in it right now. You know, I, I'm writing and I'm and I'm exploring things. And I've yeah finally started sort of writing about Georgia. But no one knows what's going to happen with this war. I think you know for a long time people in Georgia were pretty scared that you know Putin was going to come over here and do that. And while that's still definitely a possibility, I think everyone's just watching Ukraine sort of holding their breath to. You know, I mean, they were here in 2008 here last, so the the memories of that are still pretty fresh. Yeah. yeah. So um, well, it's full on. But, yeah, yeah. But no. there's also a huge, deep love here too, so, yeah. Well, mate, we look forward to reading that. I, obviously, there's so much more I need to know about Georgia now I'm, I'm learning, but I'll wait for the Oliver Mole book about that. In the meanwhile, everyone listening, get your hands on a copy of Train Lord. It's out now, and um, as, as you would deduce from this interview it's you know it's it's a it's a roller coaster of humor and pain sounds so painful mate um for a book that's about a 10-month migraine you're actually quite generous in not making it all about the 10-month migraine it's uh yeah there's a lot of there's a lot of comedy and there's a lot of uh lightness in it too so um thanks for sharing that with the world Oliver. we should plug the audio book too because we have a lot of people who listen uh to our podcast on tractors so if you want to download the audiobook <laughs> it's voiced by oliver so it's 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 the same voice that lots of people down there in sydney would have heard as they were traveling to and from work so it's the authentic voice just as the story was meant to be told yeah get your hands on the audiobook if that's how you do it in the tractor and we're going to finish this interview now with some of those train announcements that oliver made when he was on the job and he felt like lightning everyone's day thanks guys appreciate you having me on and uh yeah hope it remains sunny and beautiful patooter 